This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. For the briefest time, we had that late February moment where you could feel spring. It's going to get cold again, but at 55 degrees on a February morning, you know it's almost here. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Layla Tassi and Laura Johnston. Lisa Garvin says she should be up and running tomorrow, so the technical difficulties might be at end. We'll see. How are you on a Thursday morning? Doing all Great. Right. I rode my bike to the gym. I was very excited about the clear sidewalks and the no, no gloves. Yeah, it, it really was nice to go outside today without a coat on. And, you know, it's the promise of things to come. Okay, how much does Rob Portman's endorsement of Jane Timken to succeed him in the U.S. Senate mean for the crowded field of candidates? Laura, I wouldn't have thought that we'd see many surprises in this Senate race, but this qualifies as a bona fide surprise. Yeah, I was definitely surprised. I think my response to the news was, wow. But this does carry weight, especially with traditional Republican voters. And it means help with fundraising because major donors, some of them with commitments that would you know, be about $800,000, have told the Timken campaign they would get involved if Portman issued an endorsement. And lo and behold, he did. It, it could even help get a Trump endorsement, which is a big white whale all of these Republican, most of them, um, have been waiting for because Trump sees a candidate's viability as a factor when he decides whether to weigh in on a race. And at worst, they don't think Portman's endorsement will hurt Jane Timken's chances. Um, Andrew Tobias had a really great story. Seth Richardson also did as well yesterday, looking at an analysis. But Andrew said the endorsement is a significant external development in a race that has fallen into a bit of a stalemate with multiple independently wealthy candidates self-funding millions of ads, promoting themselves and attacking the other candidates. And we've talked about it over and over on this this podcast, how similar all these super Trumpy Republicans are. And then all of a sudden we got Bernie Moreno dropping out of the race and we got Timken with the endorsement of the sitting senator. And those are, I mean, that's probably going to change it. I thought Matt Dolan really fit the pattern of Rob mm-hmm. Portman much more closely. I thought that Portman would endorse or consider endorsing Dolan because Dolan is not a sycophant begging for Donald Trump's benediction. He's a, a conservative's conservative, a fiscal conservative, and a, a smart guy. But in the end, it was friendship. It, right. Portman said, basically, I, yeah, she's a friend. I like her. Well, uh, that's what Dolan came out and said. Basically, he said, in my conversations with Senator Portman, he made clear his support for Jane Kimping was predicated on personal friendship. And so he's basically saying... If you want a Rob Portman in the job, that's still me. Like, just because he's friends with her, that that shouldn't change what you want out of a politician. And he has been running in this less offensive, more moderate lane that Portman also occupies. Yeah, but, you know, I you mentioned the Trump endorsement. I actually think this could hurt her because Trump is not a big fan of Portman. Portman worked with the Biden administration to get the infrastructure bill passed. Right. And, and Trump was out there saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't give the Democrats a win. And I Portman mean, was, didn't 
didn't say the election was stolen, right? I mean, he never bought into that. That's a big deal in those circles. So that actually, I think, could hurt Timken. But but no doubt this does give her an edge because they're all running neck and neck doing saying the same things except for Dolan and now she rises up it should get her some donations that don't come out of her own pocket exactly that's what I was thinking she's given herself a lot of money it does make her seem more legitimate but you look at that friendship and you know she's been the head of the Ohio Republican Party for four years but like I mean it's not like she has government leadership experience no and look let's not forget when Gonzalez voted his conscience mm-hmm. involving Trump. She originally came out and said nice things about him. But then when Trump got mad about that, she and she decided to run for Senate, she completely reversed herself and attacked him. And that that shows you character. If you can't stand by what you have to say. And we saw Bernie Moreno do that repeatedly. Now he's out of the race. But I, I just that's a character issue and I'm a little bit surprised that, that Portman went with her. And it's yeah. odd that friendship is what dictates it. This isn't what's best for Ohio. It's like right. you're, you're <laughs> my pal. Even factor in. You know, it was Just like the- when he changed his whole opinion on gay marriage because suddenly there was somebody in his family and it's like okay if this is all about just personal rob portman that's not really the best way to govern i mean this is still a crowded field so seth looked at what this would mean for a bunch of other candidates for josh mandel he's been courting evangelicals and was already disliked by a lot of elected republicans so this probably doesn't make a difference I, i haven't seen anything lately in the polls but he was leading for a long time mike gibbons is still using his wealth to fund an onslaught of advertising. The most interesting one is J.D. Vance, who actually Portman endorsed in 2018 against Sherrod Brown. But obviously, Vance has changed his stance a lot since then, become a lot more Trumpy. And uh, but, you know, maybe maybe he was banking on some kind of support from the guy who had endorsed him before. I'm not sure. I don't know. We'll see how that affects it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Does Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost just hate the urban areas of the state? Why is he working so hard to prevent them from getting damages from companies that caused the opioid crisis? Layla, this feels like if if you crashed into my car and I sued you, that Dave Yost would say, no, 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 no. You don't have the right to sue her. Only I can sue mm-hmm. her. This is, this feels exactly like that. It's it like, does. What, the, what is he thinking? It does, right. I mean, so so the backstory, a bunch of states, including Ohio, had reached a $573 million settlement with McKinsey and Company, this management consulting firm. Uh, this was last year. The lawsuit was regarding the company's marketing schemes that contributed in a very big way to the opioid epidemic. Ohio got more than $24 million from that settlement. But now Yost is, is leading a group of states urging a federal judge to dismiss a lawsuit against McKinsey filed by Cuyahoga County, the city of Cleveland, and hundreds of other local governments around the country. In his legal brief, he and his counterparts in these 10 other states argued that the local governments are trying to usurp the authority of the states. And it, the brief, uh, which was, you know, was filed in San Francisco, argues that the local government's claims were resolved by the state settlements. He wrote, quote, these cases harm our system of government, needlessly clog the courts and result in a delayed and less effective remedy. Allowing political subdivisions to usurp the role of state's attorneys general is universally bad. I mean, we have yet to hear response from Cuyahoga County or the city of Cleveland on on this this meddling here. But 
U.S. District Court Judge Charles Breyer is, is scheduled to hear arguments uh, March 31st regarding these the state's claims. So we'll see how the judge feels about about this uh, sudden interjection. You know, we need to just plaster a big purple H on his forehead because this is the complete opposite of his argument in the Volkswagen case. Mm. In the Volkswagen case, the federal government got a gigantic settlement because Volkswagen was poisoning the air intentionally. He sued on behalf of Ohio, Mm. and the argument was, hey, 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 that's not fair. The federal government represented Ohio, and he said, no, no, Ohio was a wronged party. We get to sue, Mm -hmm. and he won, and he got a settlement. This is exactly the same thing. Yeah, Ohio was a wronged party in the opioid crisis, and so he went and got the Ohio damages. But Cleveland and Cuyahoga County are separate entities mm-hmm. that were wronged here. That's right. They have the right to get damages. He's this is I swear these guys down in Columbus they hate the city. I cities. think they do. This the cities fund the whole state. All the money that funds mm-hmm. the state comes out of the urban areas and then people like Dave Yost just want to stick it to him repeatedly right. because they're democratic control. Right, right. This is the most hypocritical thing he may have done yet. Ah, H for hypocrite. <laughs> Scarlet age. Yeah, no, you're completely right. And 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 look at the I mean, the scourge of, of the opioid epidemic harmed cities so, so devastatingly. I mean, it's it's to to to, uh, you know, strip them of their their right to pursue this is is uh, kind of, you know, unthinkable. Yeah, it's really kind of sleazy. OK, you're listening to Today in Ohio. With a Russian invasion of Ukraine a looming possibility, how many people in Northeast Ohio have roots there and are watching what happens with a very heightened personal interest? Laura, it's a big population in the greater Cleveland. It is. It's about 80,000 Northeast Ohioans who have roots in the Ukraine. And the large fraction of the area... Ukrainian immigrants arrived during the Industrial Revolution to work in the steel mills in Cleveland. Another wave arrived around World War II when they were fleeing the Nazis and Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin. Many in Northeast Ohio are still in touch with their extended family in Ukraine, and obviously they are watching with a lot of trepidation about what's going on right now and how Russia has placed more than 100,000 troops along Ukraine's borders. So they're pushing for more sanctions because they don't want to just have this threat that if they invade and then have to go backwards, I mean, they'd like for the U.S. government to do something right now. We have so many people that live in our area that have ties to trouble spots elsewhere. You know, every time there's a a, a big blow up in Israel and Palestine, we got lots of people here on both sides that are that watch it with heightened interest. And we've had the Afghanistan refugees here. It just seems like every time there's a major world conflict like this, Northeast Ohio has a big contingent of people that are affected by it. We do have a large, you know, population of immigrants from elsewhere and we you know the global cleveland is trying to keep being a welcoming community and you you look at all the pockets and and all of the cultural gardens and everyone represented there and yeah it seems like there is a lot of um relationships while the ukraine has been at war with russia the members of the ukrainian american community here have been raising money for their homeland they've sent everything from clothes and medical supplies to several used ambulances they purchased and shipped over to eastern ukraine through ports and Poland. I mean, the idea of shipping an ambulance, that's a pretty, pretty big task to figure out. So they have a lot of ties and they've been helping in the way they can. And now they're, they're just, 
you know, hoping and praying that their homeland isn't destroyed. The federal government here has been really good about calling out every bogus move that Putin is trying to make to justify going in. It's been a fascinating publicity battle. It's every day they say, oh, no, this is the next thing they're going to do. They're going to fake a, a battle and go in, or they've, they've infiltrated and they're spreading misinformation. It's going to be very hard for Putin to justify doing what he appears ready to do. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you. And even like watching the Olympic opening ceremonies, it was like rather than just like talk about the outfits and people waving, it was just very uh, heavy. You know, the Ukrainians are walking past Putin's here and, you know, the China. It was like, oh, my gosh, it was just a very political. it's It's a rough, rough time in the world. It was a rough time for the U.S. women's hockey team. They lost to your Canadian I know, Team Canada. Yeah, so. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. This might be my favorite story we're talking about today. How unprecedented is the ongoing showdown between Republican leaders and the Ohio Supreme Court that is taking place involving gerrymandering? Layla reporter Bob Higgs went deep on how unusual mm-hmm. this is and how it might play out. Yeah, he, he made the rounds among his, his stable of legal scholars, and they all pretty much agreed that, that this kind of battle in the highest levels of government is is pretty unique. Three times, you know, the court has struck down the maps drawn by the Republican leaders from the Ohio House and Senate. Um, Those maps pretty much guaranteed GOP dominance. So by a 4-3 majority, the court found the maps didn't adhere to the rules in Ohio's Constitution for redistricting. They have until, what, today, right, to get it right? I mean, but the legal experts Bob spoke to, they likened it to a game of chicken between the branches of government. You know, who is going to flinch first? Which, you know, while you're reading the story, it, like, creates that, that, you know, element of drama there. We, We know how the checks and balances work in government. Legislators have the power to pass laws. Executive branch can veto them. The executive veto authority can be overridden with enough votes from legislators. Judicial power uh, is vested in the Supreme Court and lower courts, and they can review the constitutionality of the laws. Um, And then, but this particular tug of war is pretty unusual, as Bob describes in his story, because the, the map makers dug in after the court struck down the first set of maps. Usually, I mean, getting slapped back by the court would be enough to course correct, right? But it hasn't been. That entrenchment could prompt the entire system to stall as the process becomes a real test of wills. And so the legal experts were wondering aloud, you know, what does the Ohio Supreme Court do if the redistricting commission doesn't ever adopt a map that the Supreme Court believes complies with the Constitution? The experts don't believe the court would hold the redistricting commission in contempt, the court too bad (laughs) i know that does seem to be i mean i know that you'd love to see that happen but i think that's the consensus among the experts it's not going to i mean the court ordered the commission to submit new maps and it did even if those maps still don't clear the bar Uh, maybe maybe the court will offer some assistance in in the you know in uh, to the to the map makers i mean that's that's the uh, the other thing that they were discussing among the, the the experts but if the court does deem this next set of maps acceptable the question becomes, will it be because the maps truly are constitutional 
or because the court has basically given up. <laughs> and our legal experts say that that has happened before in Ohio. They pointed to the DeRolf versus the state of Ohio case back in the 90s and 2000s. That's when the Ohio Supreme Court determined the funding mechanism and its over-reliance on property taxes for you know to fund schools was unconstitutional, but they never explained how to fix it. And the court reaffirmed that ruling, and there were subsequent pleas for relief, but then the court kind of shut down litigation in 2003. Well, but the difference was the court never put deadlines on that. This I, I just don't think that applies here because the court has put very serious deadlines. This is acute. What's heartbreaking about this for people who care about good government is that the Republicans have managed to almost make this sound like there are two sides to the argument, mm-hmm. and there really are not. The constitutional amendment that people passed could not have been more clear. You have to make the districts match the voting patterns of the state of Ohio. That's it. That was what was promised. These guys, these five Republicans, are violating the Constitution by refusing to do that. There's no two sides to that. They're violating the Constitution. And and yet, because they're great at messaging and the Democrats are terrible, they've managed to get some people, including some people on our editorial board, Layla, to believe that there's actually two sides to this argument. Yeah, I think you're right. So how do you think today is going to play out? I, I don't think they'll completely defy the court and not turn in maps. I, my bet is is they, they make some very token changes to them and say, okay, we think we're better. And I, it'll be interesting to see what Maureen O'Connor does. I mean, she's the swing vote because the three Republican justices have just thrown logic to, out the window, including Mike DeWine's son, who refused to recuse himself. So, you know, she's it. I mean, if she decides that, okay, these now work for me, mm-hmm then they'll work. But I, you don't know. And they're, they keep defying her. You know, I, I will be talking about Frank LaRosa in a little bit. But, you know, I, I expect she's very annoyed by them playing the brinksmanship with good government. This is about good government. And people voted for it. Right. And she's told them, go work together. And it's still, you know, very clear, even if they make some changes here, they're not working together. You know, they're just tweaking to see how far they, you know, how much they can get away with. So do you guys think that contempt is still on the table or or do you agree with these experts that that's a very No, I don't think I don't think they would do it. I think that they they might just keep saying, go back to the drawing board. I I wish they would just say, we can't believe you're refusing to follow the Constitution. So Mm. go get in a jail cell. We'll we'll bring you lunch. And when you have maps that fit the bill, we'll let you out. I mean, I just that's that's what I would do. It's like you guys are violating the law. They're all violating the law. That's the amazing thing here. They're breaking the law. And yet they stand there and pretend that it's all for the, the cause of partisanship. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Cleveland Clinic has made its announcement each year of its top 10 medical innovations into kind of a big moment, something significant. The new list is just out. Laura, what's on it? Well, what's interesting is after these years of COVID, really only one of the top 10 um, innovations, it's the number one innovation, has to do with COVID at all. So 
there's a lot of, of uh, innovation going on in the medical industry and a lot that could make life better for people. So number one is the mRNA vaccines. You know these because of the Moderna and Pfizer COVID-19 vaccines. And this category of the vaccine uses the mRNA created in a laboratory. It teaches cells to make a protein that triggers an immune response. And that's why they were able to make the COVID vaccine so quickly because they could use this existing technology. Um, there's a way to fight uh, prostate cancer by finding potential biomarkers for the disease using um, a radioactive tracer that att- attaches to some proteins. So that's a really big deal. Um, there's an RNA that treats high blood cholesterol in patients who are already taking the maximum dose of statins. There's diabetes treatment. There's an intravenous infusion specifically for postpartum depression. It uses a drug to control the brain's response to stress. This, this to me is fascinating, and it could show results quickly and be a groundbreaking because it targets the brain signals thought to cause hormone-sensitive postpartum depression, and that affects a lot of women, a lot of women that don't even know that they have it. Uh, there's a way to create or to, to treat hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I can't believe I got that one out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and just a bunch more things. If you read through that list that Julie Washington put together, these are things that affect a whole lot of people. And, you know, this is a way that will make their lives a whole lot better. And most of it, it's, it's not surgery. You know, these are, are, are things that we can do without like cutting people open. I'm going to have to come up with some stories with even more scientific words to try and trip you up. <laughs> the, what, what, what is, what, what's nice about this one, the clinic does all these annual events, the state of the clinic and all its stuff. This is cool. And, and this gets you beyond that, yes, it's the biggest employer and it's this gigantic health powerhouse. But this research is so groundbreaking and so cool for the people that are affected by all of the conditions they're dealing with. I, th- this has become one of the the coolest scientific moments each year in Cleveland to celebrate all the advances that they're making. Uh, I, I look forward to this list every year, and it's always fun to read the stories. And now it's fun to hear you say the scientific <laughs> words that go behind them. Well, and, and you're, you know, you hear things like artificial intelligence. We talk about it with computers and what it's doing. And then you see how they're using it to improve people's health, that they're creating new tools to detect body, you know, issues in your body, just like the machine learning, it's all computer driven. And it's just really cool to see that it's not just, you know, doctors and, and medicine, but we're using computers to help us better track these diseases and figure out ways around them. Yeah. Check out the story on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's put this one on the gallometer. How much gall does Secretary of State Frank LaRose have in warning that the primary <laughs> election is in jeopardy because of questions over redistricting? Because he's one of the chief causes of the uncertainty. Couldn't he, with the snap of his fingers, Layla, propose the maps that would end the uncertainty and get the election back on track? Yeah, right. I mean, so how high does the gallometer go? That's what I want to know. <laughs> we're we're so we're, we're expecting these new maps from the commission by today, but even if the Ohio Supreme Court eventually ends up approving new state legislative lines, LaRose said in a letter to Senate President Matt Hoffman, the ruling could come too late to pull off the May election smoothly, inviting quote, the potential for error, confusion, and further litigation, threatening even more court intervention and delay. Oh man, sounds pretty bad. Whose fault is that, Frank? Right. 
I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's and he's writing to another guy who is the cause of this. Right. There's five people who have put this election into jeopardy <laughs> by refusing to follow the law. So it's hilarious that he's raising the red flag, saying, "I'm shocked, shocked I to know. see the election could be in jeopardy." Yeah. It's like I, you put I, it in jeopardy. I want to know if the gallo meter is like one of those things you hit like with the bell yeah. and then it like shoots up like at a county fair and they're just all trying to hit the top like they're going to get a prize. <laughs> well, so far he's in first place. That was one of the more shocking stories to come out of yeah, this and mess. Then his calculation well, I mean, for, you know, why this has taken so long includes like the three weeks the court took reviewing the maps before deciding to reject them and the days several days the court it gave to various groups who had sued previously over the maps to to file objections to the new ones once they're approved so i guess if you just do away with that pesky review process we wouldn't be in this conundrum but but wait wait the, but the, the, they didn't do their job by the deadlines they were supposed to do it in in the constitution yeah, right. the delay was built in by these bums from the beginning these five republicans are the villains of this story and any telling of this story that doesn't show that is a fiction i it for him to stand up this is just this is this is right out of Orwell. He's just saying something that's the opposite. It, it, he's to blame for the jeopardy the election's in, and now he's acting like he's the victim of right. it. Shame on him. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are the job openings with the greatest demand in Northeast Ohio, Lara, and what's the new tool that has been developed to help fill them? I don't think any tool will solve this problem. No, no. And it's not supposed to be a short-term solution where you can click your fingers and, and be done with it. But it's a top jobs list that Ohio put together. And this is Lieutenant Governor John Husted's one of his pet projects. And we all we all remember John Husted standing up and telling us like how the state employment system is, is going to be better. And all of these great things are coming to Ohio with jobs. So he hopes that this will be uh, instructive for students and job seekers who are looking for what to do next with their life and figure out what kind of training they need because these jobs are not, you know, they're not retail jobs or, you know, waiter waiter kind of jobs where you're just going to go in. You have to actually have some education for that. But the most needed workers are laborers in freight and transportation, customer service representatives and office clerks, truck drivers and home health aides are on the, in the top five as well. And this list actually hasn't changed much since 2019. So COVID hasn't drastically altered it, but truck drivers snuck into the top five. Among the most needed jobs with median pay of over $60,000 are nurses of basically all kinds, sales representatives in the manufacturing field, teachers, computer systems analysts, and police officers. So there's we've got the top 25 right on our website, and some of them, like, they do have childcare on here and I think the average pay was like $22,000 so some of them might not be the most motivating like yep that's what I want to do with my life yeah it it it's there's so much work done to try we talked about the workforce development thing yesterday that the county and the city are trying to do but but this has been a story for 20 years there's not enough workers to fill all the jobs and what are we going to do about it and there's a lot of hand wringing and hemming and hawing but we never seem to to get there and everybody has solutions oh we're going to change tri-c and make it train people for the vacant jobs but all that stuff's been in the works for a long time has it moved the needle at all yeah i know i feel like for a while there 
pre before COVID, we were just getting uh, press releases all the time about grants that were going for job training programs. And it was like, yeah, do these work? Like there was never any study that said, this is how many people we graduated and this is how many people we placed in jobs and this is their their average wages now. I mean, obviously people know it's a problem. They're working on it. But when you look at the, the st- staffing shortage that we've talked about over and over again, it's that people don't want these jobs, right? That's why they're not in them. And <laughs> exactly. so I don't know how you make it more palatable to be a childcare worker, like literally taking care of our most valuable resource and we're paying you $22,000 a year. Yeah. That's the, like that's go the work problem. at Cedar Point. You're going to make a lot more money. <laughs> well, you're listening to Today in Ohio, but funny you should talk about Cedar Point. Layla, yesterday in your absence, Laura stepped out of her role as our sports expert and our healthcare <laughs> expert to address Cedar Point changing its pay rate. But she also mentioned that they had rejected the SeaWorld bid, yeah. uh, but it was very early news. So now that you're back, you can step into the Cedar Point reporter role. <laughs> And let oh, us know, that- <laughs> do I we know there? anything we more about, about why they rejected SeaWorld? I mean, just that they, they you know, they really aren't, uh, they're pretty tight-lipped about this, but CEO Richard Zimmerman said that it just wasn't in the best interest of the company, and he said the bid started at $60 per share and increased to $63, uh, worth an estimated $3.6 billion. So that's what we know so far. Um, I am personally very pleased to hear that they rejected the SeaWorld bid. I love the way that that Cedar Point is being managed. I mean, the park has had its ups and downs. I mean, forgive the roller coaster pun. <laughs> but, you know, things are going pretty well at Cedar Point. They said that season's, season pass sales are up in 2022, even, even from the record level in 2019. So that does well. And per person spending was up in 2021, increasing 28% from 2019 to $62. I mean, that's a lot. Jeez. I mean, that's my one complaint about Cedar Point, right? Like, <laughs> the food is so expensive there. Um, but, you know, their goals for this coming year, they're going to reinvest in its parks. They plan to spend about $210 million on capital projects. Uh, that includes about $40 million to complete the delayed renovations at two Cedar Point hotels in Castaway Bay and Sawmill Creek. But, you know, they're going to pay down some debt um, and uh, reinstate the quarterly distribution to unit holders, which had been waylaid. So, um, so yeah, I was pleased to hear that they rejected this bid. Three point six billion is a lot of money, but apparently Cedar Point is worth more. Well, we uh, when you talk about ups and downs, as we mentioned yesterday, what they pay people has had its ups and downs too. Mm-hmm. They're reducing their twenty dollar right. pay to fifteen dollars, and we'll see if they get. The I wonder if that's going to play well. We'll want. see. I mean, we're still maybe it'll uh, be like a Ferris wheel, and it'll go right back <laughs> yeah. up. Oh. <laughs> oh, all right, all right, we've reached the. <laughs> End of the useful part of this conversation. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Friday and wrap up this unusual week of news. We'll be talking about President Biden's visit to Northeast Ohio. <laughs> <laughs>